This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The city of Chattanooga has a rich architectural history. This episode is an interview with two people trying to preserve that history. Todd Morgan, executive director of the historic preservation organization Cornerstones, and Melissa Mortimer, the development review planner for the city of Chattanooga Historic Zoning Commission. Before we get to the interview, I want to invite you to support the show on Patreon. I'm hoping to expand Chattanooga Civics in the coming months, and I need your help to do it. Early patrons will have a unique opportunity to shape the future of the program by helping me decide which expansions to prioritize. They will also be the first to know about upcoming guests and will have the option to submit listener questions. You can sign up now at patreon.com chatcivics. Morgan, the executive director of Cornerstones. And I'm Melissa Mortimer, the historic preservation planner for the city of Chattanooga. Great. Thank you guys for coming today or sitting down with me. Uh, I just want to start a little bit. We're going to talk about both historic preservation in general and the city's role in historic preservation. So I want to start with you, Todd, and ask, what is Cornerstones? Ah, Well, Cornerstones is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, that is the historic preservation organization for Chattanooga. So we're here to help people understand preservation, to help them and you know help answer questions that they have about properties, to help developers you know take on difficult projects and mm-hmm. find solutions for them. And we do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of education work, and um, yeah, you know it's a big responsibility to be that organization for the whole community. But we certainly do our best. Great. And so could you explain a little bit why historic preservation is important, just broadly speaking? Oh, boy. (laughs) I will make this really short, I promise. Uh, You know, the thing about historic preservation, a lot of people sometimes, they think about it the wrong way. They think it's a hysterical group of people. Nothing should ever change. They're going to be out laying in front of buildings and, you know, kind of like, chaining themselves to trees the way people who really love trees, and I love trees, but I don't think I want to chain myself to a tree. Uh, But the truth is, when you work in this field and you've done it for a while, you begin to realize that not only is it important for us to be caring for these really beautiful works of architecture that we basically inherited from Mm -hmm. another generation Mm -hmm. that can't be replicated, you know, easily, if at all, but there's also very real economic you know, benefits to these buildings that, you know, they can assist with tourism, they can assist with business creation, um, they can just do extraordinary things for quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, for helping to make neighborhoods safer, uh, helping to improve home ownership opportunities, that just, the list goes on and on. So what we try to do when we are talking about preservation is kind of help make that conversation fit the individual or the group that we're speaking to because a lot of people have the warm fuzzies and so they love grandma's house or they love a building because they have memories attached to it and that's wonderful we all Mm -hmm. have that probably Uh, but then there's also sometimes where you have to get really into the economics because you're dealing with political leadership you're dealing with investors and you know they're looking at numbers in the bottom line so they have to understand how saving a building will really become valuable for them mm-hmm. as part of their business goal. Mm-hmm. So how do preservationists kind of determine which buildings ought to be preserved, which ones can be preserved? Like you said, there's economic factors at play. So what's kind of just the general breakdown of, of that thought process and how that consensus is reached? Well, technically, if a building is 50 years old or older, it could be historic. Uh, and so every year that passes, more and more buildings fall in to the potential to become historic. Now we have a lot of mid-century modern buildings you know, that qualify as being historic. Uh, but the thing is, we look at very specific uh, aspects of a structure. So we're going to be looking at the architectural merit of a building, uh, the materials, the craftsmanship, 
we're going to be looking at its historical importance to the community, what kind of events took place there, what kind of people slept there, you know. And, you know, the goal is to figure out what are the most important assets for the community to preserve. Mm -hmm. Um, just because a building is old actually doesn't always make it a good candidate. And so we just look at a lot of different aspects and weigh them very carefully. Mm -hmm. And how are all these concerns balanced with issues like the demand for more housing or commercial property, both, uh, you know, kind of internally and externally? So if you've got a building that is taking up a valuable piece of real estate and, you know, somebody wants to tear it down to build something or... On the other hand, if you've got a valuable piece of real estate and a historic building, but the interior layout doesn't match the needs of the community, how are those concerns balanced in terms of, you know, how you decide which buildings to press hardest to, to preserve? Right. Well, and that, that can be a real challenge because we know that there are development pressures in our communities. We know that Chattanooga is very popular, and so a lot of people are moving here from other places. And with that, a lot of developers have their eye on the city. They're not always people who live here and have the same connections mm -hmm. to the community. So they are looking at just a piece of property or a building and what kind of value that can bring to their business. So one of the things that you have to think about with these historic buildings is how versatile that they are. Mm -hmm. So that old mill actually can become fantastic condominiums. That old school can actually be turned into an extraordinary senior living facility. Um, you know, we've seen old hotels become residential and then old department stores become residential. And, you know, it's just the list goes on and on. So a lot of times what you have to do is help people envision what can be and help mm -hmm. them understand building codes, help them understand you know, things like the federal tax credits that could be available to help them mm -hmm. when they're putting together the bottom line on how all this is going to work financially and find incentives that can help offset any kind of extra costs that might arise with taking on that historic building. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer that our city and our neighborhoods really benefit from having these historic buildings. Uh, but there's also, when you drive around Chattanooga, you see a lot of empty lots and things that could be filled in. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you can look at these old buildings and learn from them so that the infill that happens is done really well right. and creates just an extraordinary neighborhood to be a part of. So we absolutely, you know, as an advocates, advocacy organization, would monitor really significant works of architecture that could be threatened. You know, and we're going to, you know, use every tool at our disposal to try to help convince the community and the owners that this building needs to be saved mm -hmm. and what can happen. And then sometimes there are compromises that take place. Maybe the facade of the building is the, is the best part and the rest of the building needs to be rebuilt. You know, that has happened before. Uh, and, you know, sometimes portions of buildings, mm -hmm. you know, are all that can be saved. You just have to look at the condition that they're in and the overall scheme for the development of right. the site. Just a question I'm thinking of, of off the top of my head. Um, you mentioned infill lots and, you know, kind of making sure the development is cohesive and, and understanding how a new structure might interact with a historic structure. Uh, does Cornerstones do any work where maybe zoning codes don't align with the existing structure? Uh, is that something that y'all have ever done or, or something? I'm thinking uh, in particular of, of setbacks. A lot of historic buildings tend to have zero setbacks, zero lot lines, and there's a lot of areas in town where that's not legal anymore. Mm -hmm. um, is that something the Cornerstones does or has thought about doing in terms of walking people through zoning processes to make sure that their work can be more cohesive with the historic fabric? That's something that we are absolutely here to do. Uh, one of the things that I have enjoyed discovering during my time here in Chattanooga is, you know, that other people and organizations that have a love for classical architecture and very traditional design. And that's inspiring to me because I know that a lot of people really care about these things. And I know here in Chattanooga, there's been a move toward form-based codes in certain neighborhoods that yeah. allow for buildings to come closer uh, to the lot lines, which is very traditional. I think we're all kind of filling that out neighborhood by neighborhood. Right. You know, but uh, absolutely, yes, we're here to advocate for good design guidelines for historic neighborhoods and for policies that will help the city as a whole. 
Right. So what are some examples of buildings that have been successfully preserved in Chattanooga and maybe some examples of buildings you're still seeking to preserve, good candidates that you've seen around town that you're looking for somebody to, to take care of? Yeah. Well, I think one of the best success stories isn't even really a building per se, the way we would traditionally think of it, but the Walnut Street Bridge, I think, was an incredible save and repurposing of that site. Uh, it's a great economic generator as well as just a wonderful place for the community to mm -hmm. use an experience. Um, I know I have friends that visit Chattanooga and they always go to the Walnut Street Bridge. So <laughs> that's a wonderful one. Uh, one of the most recent is the, the old YMCA, which has become the Commons House. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a really cool reuse of the structure. And Melissa can tell you that that twin, the, the twin for that building is in Knoxville and it's still being used as a YMCA. Oh, wow. So it's just a great way to take an older building that was built for one thing and bring it to life mm -hmm. in a new way. And it gives it character mm -hmm. and it gives it personality uh, that if they had just built a new building from scratch, you just wouldn't have that. And I know people are drawn to it because I hear them say so. Mm -hmm. No, I walked by that building all the time. My office is in the area and sometimes I just go for a walk to clear my head. And I remember walking by that before they started on it thinking this is such a beautiful building. Something needs to go here. And I was very excited when, when the Common House did step in and, and they've done a really good job. With that, I was hoping you could uh, dive in a little bit more to the Walnut Street Bridge because I don't know how many people actually know that story and, you know, kind of the danger that it was in for a little while. Oh, my gosh. I'll probably have to let Melissa chime in a little bit on that. But, you know, whenever structures like this, you know, like you can't really use it as a bridge anymore. Like, you know, it could be, you know, structural elements. It would just cost so much to actually rebuild that mm -hmm. or the width isn't appropriate for mm -hmm. modern traffic. And so I've seen this happen in other communities. In fact, there's a smaller town up in, further up in East Tennessee that I really had hoped they would save their bridge. You know? And they didn't. They just built a new modern bridge, mm -hmm. tore down the old one. So now you've got that little zigzag in the road pattern. But it would have been such a perfect candidate to do what happened here in Chattanooga. It mm -hmm. would have just been perfect because it was right on the edge of their downtown it connected to a marina. People would have had so much fun. So I'm glad that people in this community had the vision to where, you know, this may not be suitable for traffic, you know, trucks and cars the way it used to be, but or trains, you know, any kind of vehicle that may have moved across that bridge at some point and instead saw it as a way to keep people actively engaged in downtown. So do you want to jump in there? Oh, sure. So I don't... It was definitely before my time as mm -hmm. um, being in preservation in Chattanooga. Um, but I know that the aquarium paid, and a lot of different people were involved in tech. It wasn't like Cornerstones or one specific organization. Right. But the aquarium being there really led, had an anchoring point on one end mm -hmm. to kind of motivate um, the city to reuse that space and reimagine it right. as a walking bridge. Um, and I think, um, I did have a friend that had a story, um, Andrew Smith, who was instrumental in starting this organization, Cornerstones, um, in the eighties, it was actually called Landmarks Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. Um, and he tells a story about how he was put on a plane to be fly to DC to talk about trying to get, um, money for saving the bridge in, um, President Reagan's budget, mm -hmm. um, for, um, for saving it. So, I mean, it, it took a lot of moving pieces and I think it, at the beginning, it just, it starts with one person with a vision. Um, and that's kind of how things start. Right. But. That's awesome. Um, so I, I've got one more question that's just kind of generally directed at uh, historic preservation more broadly. What does a successful case preservation look like? Uh, I think we've touched on a couple different aspects of this throughout this conversation already, but just dive in and, and does it mean saving the whole building? Does it mean gutting it and saving the facade? What, what does that look like to you? What does Cornerstones try and do uh, 
and what are maybe some of the different contexts that affect that decision? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think every building has its own unique story. Mm -hmm. That's what's so wonderful about working with these historic places, that the end product, if you do it correctly, mm -hmm. is going to respect the character and the integrity of that building and help tell its story. Right. So, you know, I have seen places uh, renovated and restored into, as I mentioned before, a senior living facility. And it was a former high school. Mm -hmm. And so the sales staff actually would dress in the old like cheerleading outfits <laughs> and things. And, and on top of that, there was a gallery within the building of old school photographs, mm -hmm. class photos, memorabilia that have been left. I've seen this in different places, actually, where if you're smart and you take one on a project like this, really pull out its history. I mean, talk about everything. So our offices are here at the Choo Choo mm -hmm. and the Terminal Dome. Uh, Cornerstones owns this part of the Terminal Station. And we are embarking on reimagining this space. So what we would like to see in the end is this space where people could come and experience the architecture, uh, experience uh, the history, you know, like learn about the history. I mean, you know, isn't it cool to be in a place where Elvis Presley, you know, walked through or, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, walked through and just to be a part of that tradition, but then also have it be something that meets our current needs as a culture. You know, I mean, what, what will that be? We're still figuring all of that out and we have some really cool ideas, but in the end, for this to be really successful, not only would the building be restored and in good shape so that it has many, many, many years in front of it mm -hmm. again, but it's also being uh, engage, engaging with people in the community right. in a way that it hasn't before. So it can't be a train you know, station again, it can't be a, a passenger lobby, but you know, the memories are here, the architecture's here, the stories are here. How do we really employ that in a whole new project? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we like to see the integrity of the building saved, you know, like the, all of the architectural details, beautiful cornices, great windows, uh, beautiful entryways and doors. Sometimes you move inside, there's great flooring, there's wonderful. Uh, millwork within the building, all of those are things that we want to see saved and incorporated into these new ideas. And that's from a preservationist perspective, but then ultimately from the, an ownership perspective, if someone can accomplish all of that, save that building, preserve all of those details and uh, you know the character and just keep it beautiful and then make it work with a business plan mm -hmm. so that they're successful, that's perfect because what you don't want is someone and it's perfectly possible to do this spend a lot of money on a building oh it looks really great the business model isn't so good it may last a year and then you're right back to having a vulnerable building potentially right. again right. so you really have to pair up a lot of different layers mm -hmm. uh, to make sure a project is successful mm -hmm. well great thank you i want to kind of shift gears and move over to the very Chattanooga specific aspect of our historic planning and zoning department with Melissa Mortimer. And again, if you could introduce yourself and your role sure. with that department. Um, I'm Melissa Mortimer. I'm the historic preservation planner for the city of Chattanooga. Um, I've previously served actually on the commission before I took this role. So I've kind of been on both sides as a okay. staff person and um, a commission member. Um, worked in the preservation field for almost 10 years now, um, have a master's in historic preservation and then um, an undergrad in interior design. So I'm familiar with, you know, design plans um, along with preservation. Um, and the city role, I am in charge of all of the local historic districts. So mm -hmm. we have Ferger Place, um, St. Elmo, uh, Fort Wood, and Battery Place. Mm -hmm. um, all of those, with the exception of Battery Place, are actually national register districts as well okay what is that does that so involve difference. any extra uh, regulations or anything or is it just a kind of a point of pride what difference does does the national registration make so the, a lot of people think that they're one and the same so there's local historic zoning mm -hmm. um, which is what we have and then there's national register the national register um, is actually basically a accolade of some sort so it doesn't have 
um, the teeth that local zoning has. Mm-hmm. Um, for National Register, it puts it, it was part of the Preservation National Preservation Act of 1966, um, which protected buildings that were National Register eligible or listed against federal undertakings. Um, so this can kind of get in the weeds with that, but um, something that's listed on the National Register can't, the federal government cannot adversely affect a historic resource we, using and an undertaking can kind of be defined as, you know, any type of money, permits, grants, um, anything that the federal government has a tie-in. Mm-hmm. There has to be a whole review process right. um, in order that the federal government isn't out. Um, I like to use, for example, we have the Chattanooga Choo Choo here. It's National Register listed. Um, and cell phone towers have federal permits on them. So mm-hmm. if someone wanted to put a cell phone tower right in the front of this building, right on Market Street, there would be a whole review process to see if that is going to adversely affect the building. So they're mm-hmm. going to look at the view shed, how it might change, how it would affect the building. Um, so in terms of our districts, um, it doesn't really play much of a role, um, but it does. It did help us get a survey of all the districts, mm-hmm. um, along with um, architectural descriptions of all the properties, and it, it's just kind of like an honorary designation. Yeah, that's really and cool. And a lot of times, no because we have that National Register listing, um, I think that was kind of the catalyst to kind of open up to historic mm-hmm. zoning, um, which is actually uh, the city itself doesn't go out and say, we want to make this historic district. It actually comes from the neighborhood. So the, all of our districts that we have were requested by the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... I guess let's start there. What is that process like for a neighborhood to decide that they want to be registered under historic zoning? Uh, and then what are the practical implications of that decision, uh, both in terms of, of what steps do they have to go through to get the designation? And then once they have the designation, we'll get into what exactly that means for the people who live there. Okay. Um, so we actually have two different processes. There is actually a landmarking as well as a historic district. Mm-hmm. Um, landmark is essentially the same as a district, but it's for an individual building. Got it. Um, so we have a separate process for that. Um, there was an application that went through before COVID um, for the CSAS. Mm-hmm. Or not, was it CSAS? I believe so. Um, building is R.H. Hunt School. Mm-hmm. And so they are, some of the alumni want to protect it. So they wanted to put in a landmark status for that building. So there's like a public um, review process. You're going to want to talk to your city councilman for support, or woman for support. Um, so you get that. And once the application is submitted, it's actually voted on by the uh, Historic Zoning Commission mm-hmm. um, at one of our meetings. And then it also has to be approved by city council. Um, but for a district, we're going to want to get an overall consensus that the neighborhood wants right. it. So there'll be a lot of public meetings. Um, a lot of times we'll have a petition of sorts just to mm-hmm. have, see how many people are actually interested. And then once it would be approved, um, you know, there's a city ordinance. And then we'll have to have guidelines created specifically for that district. Because every district, like if you look at St. Elmo versus Fort Wood, they're very different architectural styles and, mm-hmm. and time periods. So the guidelines are going to be specific to the architecture that you see in that neighborhood. If it's all, um, like, say, Lufton City, which is actually a mill town mm-hmm. from um, Dixie Mercerizing, they're going to have a lot less architectural details and um, simpler materials. So that might want to be more of a conservation district that looks at demolition, new construction, form size and not the small details like what is your siding going to be mm-hmm. um and there or if another district is primarily just craftsman bungalows you're not going to have to talk about like verge board or decorative details that you see on like a gothic revival or victorian house so mm-hmm. it would be a pretty long process and then you have to survey every house in the neighborhood wow. um which gets the architectural description of of the house photos from you know of course, from the roadway, public right-of-way of, you know, each side. So we have documentation of what it was originally, like, at the time. Um, and then it would have to go through, of course, on the ordinance for final approval to right. begin. 
Uh, you mentioned that that survey that has mm -hmm. to take place. Is there any way for citizens to review that information just for curiosity's sake? Oh, if they wanted to mm -hmm. see what a certain building looked like when sure. whenever that survey was done, how would people go about doing that? Um, so actually, we are a certified local government, which is a um, CLG, and it's a National Park Service program, um, which... Uh, is run through our state of sort preservation office. But um, all that to say, to be in the program, you have to have um, historic district zoning designation along with um, you know having consistent historic zoning commission meetings. But with that, you're required to resurvey your districts mm -hmm. every 10 years. So we kind of have record of change over time of these buildings. Right. Um, unfortunately, uh, we have not surveyed the districts because... It's just not possible for a staff person to right. be able to, I'm just one person. Right. Um, we're not the department, it's just me um, doing everything. And so I started Ferger Place, and then I actually got the state to come down and do um, Fort Wood this summer. Mm -hmm. um, but St. Elmo is kind of a beast. Um, yeah, it's a description the on form. every single house uh, right. and photograph. So right now we have copies of the original surveys, mm -hmm. um, which were about, I think, 1990 for St. Elmo. Some, one of the neighborhoods was in the 80s, but I have all those on file in the office, so anyone can come in um, and request to see those, um, or if they email me, I could probably just, we have a form that talk, that someone filled out about the house, talking about, you know, what the siding was, the materials, if there were any additions. I think at that point, they were even drawing, like, uh, a site plan right. and showing where windows were and stuff on the drawing roof lines. And then there should be at least two to three photographs of the house from that right. time. That's really interesting, especially mm -hmm. for the people who live in, in these districts. Yeah. I had no idea that existed and that mm -hmm. ability to go back. You said it was around eighties and nineties that most of these yeah. neighborhoods started. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, that's really interesting. Um, so I want to get into kind of the, into the weeds about these districts and mm -hmm. what exactly it means for the people who live there. Uh, and I guess we'll start with, you know, you already mentioned that in order to become a district in the first place, guidelines have to be written that are mm -hmm. specific to that district. So who writes those guidelines? Uh, and then what is the process? Do they have to be written by one group and approved by another group? What does that process look like? So the guidelines are, um, of course, I wasn't here when our guidelines, mm -hmm. which date back to the original um, designation for these neighborhoods, um, they are, there's a lot of public input on them when they're created, and then they're ultimately approved um, in combination, I believe, with the ordinance by city council. Right. Um, but of course, city council is going to want to know if the neighborhoods, you know, agree with them first. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, ours were written most of the time um by a consultant mm -hmm. who is kind of does this. I think one of ours was Phil Thomason, um, who owns Thomason Association Associates. Is that right? So he's out of Nashville, but he does design guidelines across the country. Right. So they're really experts in, in in knowing what other people looking at case studies for other cities and communities and um, typical standards for rehabilitation. And of course, ours follow the. Um, the Secretary of Interior Standards for Rehabilitation, which is put out by the National Park Service. So it's kind of like the gold standard for um, preservation. And mm -hmm. so our guidelines follow that. Um, but uh, we are hoping, or I would at least, <laughs> would like to see our guidelines updated, mm -hmm. um, mainly because, as Todd was mentioning, 50 years is now is is historic. So when these guidelines were written, 1950s, mid-century modern architecture was not his, considered historic yet. So a lot of the guidelines don't touch on materials or design for that style, or even a 1970s ranch, because mm -hmm. 1972 is considered historic now. So we're not going to want someone in a 1960s ranch house with big picture windows um, to go back with a double hung wood sash window. Mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate for that. So, and there's some other things and design is always changing. Um, you know, everyone wants the horizontal fence now. Um, and everyone wants, uses that as kind of like the modern thing for railing. So we don't really talk about that in here. Um, so I think 
with design constantly changing, it's something we need to um, make sure the guidelines are addressing. So I think they are due for an update. Right. So what would that process be? Do you know how how that would even have to be kicked off in order to say, would that have to come from the Historic Zoning Commission or would it have to come from City Council to say that these these guidelines are in need of updating? Um, I would say the neighborhoods first because it's the one that affects them the most. Um, And that's why the guidelines exist is because the neighborhoods requested these um, historic districts to protect the integrity and association and feeling of this neighborhood and its architecture. Um, so I think the first step, which I know St. Elmo has reached out to um, their councilwoman um, to kind of talk about it, because, mm-hmm. I mean, not only styles change, but materials change. There's right. new materials that um, maybe didn't even exist in the guidelines from 1990. Right. So, um, it's definitely something I think that's in conversation. It's just um, finding the ability on the city level to be able to accomplish it. Right. Uh, so for these guidelines, and maybe it differs from district to district, but what is the level of focus on the preservation of existing buildings versus uh, making sure new buildings are cohesive with the district? So we look at both um, fairly equally. Um, me with a background in preservation, um, I have more passion, of course, towards um, preserving the historic houses. Mm-hmm. But um, we look at both because both play in part of the context of the neighborhood. So with new construction, um, we're you know more lenient on materials and and design. And actually, we don't want a replication of a 1920s bungalow. We want it to be um, a design of today's time, but also it needs to fit cohesively in the neighborhood. And and that we kind of look at roof form, shape, um, size, massing of the building, um, where it fits in that specific block that it's going in. Because mm-hmm. we're not, we don't want a two and a half story home next to a one story bungalow. Um, so, and I don't think the neighbors would want that either. So a lot of it has to do with the context um, and then not being a replica. And then we do look at materials for new construction, but they are not as strict because if you had original wood clapboard sided house, we're going to want you to go back with that same material um, if it can't be repaired. And with new construction, you kind of have more of an opportunity of what material of course, we do have specific stuff we don't recommend because mm-hmm. we don't think it fits. Like if we're not going to want you to put, um, you know, vertical metal siding on a house because it just doesn't fit the context. Mm-hmm. But um, you do have a little bit more opportunity mm-hmm. with new design. So it sounds like the new building review is is much broader, much more focused on the overall form, massing. Mm-hmm slightly materials but it doesn't get into the the real details for uh for the older buildings where it is more focused Mm -hmm. on detail how do you deal with buildings that are maybe kind of cobbled together over generations i mean i I, Mm -hmm. just thinking of walking around san elmo there's lots of buildings where it's the the front half is is an older building that's original to the neighborhood and then as you get further back it's like Maybe that was added in the '60s, and then added again in right. the '90s, and like it's it's this mash of different materials and mm-hmm. styles and everything. How do you how do you deal with things like that? Well, first of all, that's the reason we have guidelines now right. is to prevent something like that. Um, and 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 also want to just say before we move on from the new construction, it's not historic zoning's role to prevent new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, we if you have a lot and it's buildable per zoning. We're not there to stop developers, but we just want to make sure that the design is thoughtful and appropriate. Right. Um, but with um, with something that has additions, uh, that is something that does have to go to the commission. And it's, it's kind of up to, depending on the new design, of course, everything is reactive. So if that house has had all those additions and mismatched and they're not doing anything to it and it's been there for 30 years, I can't go tell them they have to change it. It has to be okay. We're gonna up. We're gonna change this house. We're gonna 
we want to make this cohesive on the back and change the siding and all that. Um, so all those would have to go to the commission to kind of interpret how what changes they wanted to make um, would be appropriate and follow the guidelines in mm-hmm. terms of siding. And there's also, it's it's always kind of, and every property is going to be different, every project, right. because everyone's in a different context. Everyone has a different building construction date or design. Um, where was I going with that? I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, but with preservation, there's also kind of what you're asking, Todd, is is that 1950s edition just as important as the original 1900s house? Because it tells a story of the development. Right. Um, so that's something that not only the homeowner has to take into consideration, but also the commission on, on what story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, because maybe that maybe there was... Um, you know, just a single family there. And then a bunch of cousins had to move in for some reason. So they had to expand on the back or, you know, there's always different stories and stuff that come with a building. I actually was doing some research on, there's a Gothic revival house on Tennessee Avenue. And there's not many, I don't know, many others (laughs) in the district. And when you walk in, it's like a triangle entryway with two doors. Hmm. So you'd immediately think, oh, this is a duplex. But when you go back and look at the historic maps, it was always a single family dwelling. So then you kind of have this, I call it like, when you kind of call it reading a building or you right. know, history mysteries. But um, so I just went on a deep dive of trying to figure out, looking at census records, like maybe another family was living with them and, um, you know, all that stuff to try to figure out why that house was that way. So mm-hmm. I think the buildings all tell a story of development and the, maybe the families that live there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a long-winded, I don't know if I answered <laughs> your question, but... No, that was all that was all good. Yeah. Um, I guess you, you mentioned something that I want to jump back to with mm-hmm. the, the new housing versus existing building preservation and how... So the commission reviews both of those, right? Right. But I guess what is the level of control they have over each? Can they outright deny new construction if it is just completely out of context? Or can they, like, what what level of control does the commission right. have over these changes, new construction, renovation, et cetera? Um, so you, they, they do have the opportunity to deny something. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it has to be on the basis that it doesn't meet the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have reasoning behind right. it. It can't just be like, we think it's ugly. And, you know, we try to tell them it's not necessarily what you think or your opinion. It is based on what we can regulate in the guidelines. Right. Um, So for new construction, I'm sure you heard of, we've had some contentious cases in the past year. Um, So while we couldn't necessarily tell people, you know, you can't build here, um, we have to. We went through. I want to say it was almost five meetings for one of these houses, and just saying, um, you know, this is this meets guidelines, but you're still lacking on. You know, your garage is still attached. Your your building height is too high for the context of the, this street. Your foundation height needs to be. How can we mitigate with the topography having such a tall foundation? Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to look at retaining walls. Um, you know, you have this feature on here, which isn't really appropriate. And so a lot of times we've denied a few cases and then um, they bring back a new design. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes if it's something that can be easily changed, it will be deferred. And they say, you know, we want you to look at this, this, and this in your project and maybe tweak this and then bring it back to us. Because it's not the commission's uh, job to design your project or redesign it. I think sometimes that becomes an issue. Um which, because just because the commission has experience and is kind of passionate about something, so they'll say, like, oh, you should do this or that. But it's not really the role. It should just be, you know, this doesn't meet the guidelines. Look at it this way and then come back and so mm-hmm. we could get a better product. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you walk us just through the process? Um, I guess we've kind of jumped ahead of ourselves. This is the certificate mm-hmm. of appropriateness mm-hmm. is what we've been talking about this yes. whole time but we haven't actually named it yet could you could you walk us through what this process looks like for mm-hmm. just somebody who's trying to do 
you know, take your most average case and just kind of explain what that looks like for somebody trying to do renovations or repairs sure. or something. Um, so there's two different COAs. Um, they're all COAs, which is mm-hmm. certificate appropriateness. And that's for any exterior alteration to your home or site in the historic districts. Um, it's not a building permit, um, but it is essentially like your permit to do the work um, in the historic districts. Um a simplest one would be a fence is a good example of what a staff review would be. Mm-hmm. So if a project um, meets the guidelines and is not, I think I should pull it up, but cer- certain cases can just go to the staff to be reviewed. And that's if it meets the guidelines or if it meets certain criteria. Um, so for historic zoning commission, if it's a new addition, new construction, um, an outbuilding or it doesn't meet the guidelines, and there could be one other thing I'm missing, um, per the city ordinance, it has to go to the commission. Mm-hmm. But if it is something else that, um, you know, I can approve that meets the guidelines, that's a staff re- staff review. Mm-hmm. So our process is on the same website as all other zoning um, and building permits. It's on OpenGov, and you can find all of that on the city's website. Um, but basically, to get COA, uh, you're going to go through and submit your application, which would include, so for a site, uh, for a fence, we're going to want to have a site plan to show where your fence is, uh, material list, how high is it, what's the material, is it picket, is it a privacy fence, um, and then that'll go through the intake review. Uh, COA staff review is $25. Um, and then I tried, once they are paid, I try to have those done in 24 hours. So then we'll just give you a certificate of appropriateness, which you just print out and put at your house. So, um, people know driving by that it has been approved. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the commission review projects, that's going to be a little bit more time consuming because we have to have all the information in a month. In advance. Um, so for a commission meeting, I have to put together a presentation on each case um, to go through the, what guidelines are applicable for the project. I'm going to say how it meets the guidelines, how it doesn't meet the guidelines. I'm going to have pictures of all the neighbors' houses to show context. Um, we have maps. What else do we require? Um, of course, photos of the property. So if we're doing addition, we're going to want to have elevation drawings to show what it's going to look like on the back. Um, we're going to need material lists. What's your siding? And a lot of times I think people get confused with the material lists and they give me a list of every type of nail they're going to use. It's not that specific. We just need to know if, if you have a window, is it going to be aluminum clad? Is it going to be wood clad? Um, all right. What type of siding is it? Is it wood siding? Is it hardy? Um, or some other cementitious siding. Um, so we'll have materialist elevations of what it's going to look like. Um, and then a site plan showing where it's going to be. And then um, photographs. Mm-hmm. So those will all be presented to the commission. And I'll give my staff report. And then the applicant has 10 minutes to then speak on it. So if there's any clarifications they want to give or just talk about, you know, why this addition is important, say, that, you know, this is... My family loves to be in St. Elmo, but we're growing and we need more space. If they want to make that case to the commission for needing an addition, mm-hmm. they have 10 minutes to speak. And then the community has 10 minutes or five minutes per person to speak for or against the case. So if someone's neighbor is doing something that they think will adversely affect their property, mm-hmm. um, you know, they can come up and, and say their concerns. Um, and of course, all the presentations and staff reports are posted seven days prior to the meeting on the um, on our city website for sort zoning so that people can see what cases are coming up um, what the project scopes are and if they can't make the meeting um, we allow comments to be emailed to me within 24 hours and they'll be displayed in red at the meeting um, and we also post the big orange signs I think they're orange maybe they're red they go up um, seven days prior mm-hmm. so that, and that's only for ones that are going to the commission. And that's so that neighbors know that that is going to be on the docket that month. Right. And they can review it. And when are these commission meetings so that people can? The third Thursday of every month. Um, so tomorrow, as we're recording this on the 16th. So it's tomorrow, February 17th. And they're mm-hmm. 930 every 
Thursday, and the DRC building at 1250 Market Street mm-hmm. and um, the big conference room A on the first floor when you walk in. And so does is the commission allowed to consider any criteria outside of what's written in the historic guidelines, um, economic hardship, or you mentioned, you know, personal individual needs of, of each family and right. things like that. Uh, how are those concerns balanced and, and how much leeway does the commission have? Um, so in our ordinance, there is a, the opportunity for any applicant to apply for uh, an economic hardship. Mm. Um, of course, it spells out exactly what that might stand for. So it, I don't think it necessarily it covers everything people would think. Um, but that is an option, and that would then, and there's also if an applicant doesn't like the ruling that the commission gives, you, like any other person, can appeal um, the commission's uh, decision in Chancery Court. Um, so you have a certain amount of time, I would have to look up in the ordinance how right. many days to appeal it if you're not happy with their decision. Um, in theory, it, there's nothing that spells out what you can. It's like, oh, this family, I mean, they're human. So I can't say there's any rule saying, you know, you could see out of this if there's this situation. And at the end of the day, um, you know, there's tasks with following the guidelines. Right. Um, but like I said, also, every case is going to be different. And the context is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um It all just depends on the commission. There's some cases where they come up, and I think, oh, this is going to be different. The commission's going to have a lot of discussion on this. It's going to be an issue, and they say, this looks great. Let's move on. (laughs) Um, So I I can't ever say what the commission's going to do, but um, it all just depends. Right. Well, that's all the questions that I had, but I want to give both of you all the opportunity if there's anything that you think we haven't covered or anything you want to say about either your work with the city or preservation more broadly? Well, I'll just share this because I actually love historic districts, obviously, Uh, but uh, I would encourage people to not be afraid of a local historic district or to be discouraged by having to go through the certificate of appropriateness process and go into the Historic Zoning Commission. I mean, these are good people and they really are working hard to make good decisions on behalf of the community. Uh, If you're fortunate enough to live in a historic home or a historic neighborhood, there are so many rewarding benefits that come from that. And so you're part of a community. And so what happens is the community is coming together to kind of make sure that this special place in Chattanooga stays that way. Uh, A lot of people think that, you know, it's, I don't want to live in a historic district. Someone's going to tell me what color to paint my front door or, you know, it's just, it's, it's my property. Why can't I do whatever I want to with that because this is America. And that's kind of the way we think about things like that. But when you're in a historic district and you do have a historic zoning commission and design guidelines at your disposal, it's kind of like getting free design advice and consultation. I mean, you have professionals serving on that commission. You're backed by, you know, the local design guidelines, but also the Secretary of the Interior Standards, which is a nationwide standard for how to rehabilitate and care for historic buildings. So there are examples from across the country on how this has been done well. And so there's a lot of resources Mm -hmm. at our disposal for making these decisions. And I think that, you know, under most normal circumstances, you'll find the Historic Zoning Commission decisions to be very fair and very supportive for a neighborhood. Um, I've actually gone to meetings where people are considering developing a new historic uh, neighborhood for a community. And and unfortunately, a lot of times misinformation gets out there and people get very scared and they show up at a meeting and they are already in a very bad mood. (laughs) And so what we try to do is kind of talk it out. It's like, well, here's the thing. You get to have a voice in this. You know, you are part of this neighborhood. We want to know what your thoughts are. This isn't someone just writing in from the outside and we're going to dictate, you know, to you every little move that you make. Uh, You absolutely have a voice. You always have a voice. Even when design guidelines are completed, Melissa said they need to be looked at again. Well, you have that voice. You know, you can comment on what you see as frustrating or what you see as a good thing. So it's meant to be a community process. I just really appreciate all the work that Melissa does, all of our members of the Historic Zoning Commission, 
Uh, it's not always an easy task, but just like our organization, you know, we're tasked with helping to ensure that the architectural heritage of Chattanooga survives for the next generation and isn't just callously treated, uh, you know, either by people in the community or even outsiders who just see a way, quick way to make money. You know, there's something more at stake. We are stewards, and that's really an honor, you know, to be in that position. Um, I will say so too. I think I'm often seen as the bad guy in, <laughs> um, in these neighborhoods, and I, I really hate that I, I am seen that way. But um, like Todd said, I want to kind of emphasis is like we are stewards of these historic houses mm-hmm. and these places, and um, even with my own home, I live in a well, I think it's around 1930. Uh, house, you know, I think about with every change that I make that, you know, this was someone's family's home and, you know, how would they feel about this or how is the next person, whatever I do to this house, like how is, how is it going to affect them? Um, so through all my changes and everything, you kind of have to think about the house and you being a steward of that and, you know, someone's family's legacy and, and also with the neighborhood as a whole, I mean, why did you move to St. Elmo? Well, a lot of people move there because they love, you know, the feeling of St. Elmo, the context and like um, the atmosphere, mm. you know, if all those houses were demolished and, you know, cookie cutter new houses were all filled in there, it wouldn't be the same. And you wouldn't have the same history and um, and background of the residents mm-hmm. there as well. So um, some days my job's really hard. Um <laughs> Some days it's terrible, but um, I try to remember that, you know, preservation, I call myself a social worker for historic buildings because, you know, preservation isn't like the highest paying, greatest job. Um, of course, I, I mean, I'm sure Todd could say the same as like, pres- I mean, preservation for us is, is a great job um, and what we're passionate about. Um, but you know, we do this because we care mm-hmm. and, and we want to see these places safe for, you know, future families and um, to experience. Well, great. Thank you both for your time. This has been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Go preserve Chattanooga. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics, or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.